Let's read together Psalm 118. It's on page 565 in your Bibles. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us. We beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. I will give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. After a 12 or 13 week sermon series about basic Christian beliefs or doctrine, I want to turn in a slightly different direction today, a much more pastoral theme. Sermon series about what we believe certainly have their place, but there are other ways to talk about the good news. And so today, what I would like to do is to think carefully with you about this person who rode the donkey into Jerusalem. He was a king, yes. Uh, uh, most definitely, uh, but uh, uh, an unusual king. Uh, A king who didn't at first seem like a king. Uh, A king who didn't present himself the the way most kings uh, present themselves. Let's look together at Matthew's account of the Palm Sunday story. It's found in uh, Matthew 21. I'm going to read the first uh, 11 verses there. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil. 
asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This too is the word of the Lord. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, in October 1898, the German emperor Wilhelm II, accompanied by his wife, Augusta Victoria, made, if you will excuse the expression, a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. According to eyewitnesses, thousands of of cheering people gathered at the Jaffa Gate to welcome this German monarch. The, the purpose of his visit was to dedicate the German Lutheran Church of the Redeemer, which uh, I know some of you have visited on your own uh, trips to uh, the Holy Land. For Emperor Wilhelm's entrance into the city, several uh, alterations were made to the Jaffa Gate, uh, mostly to widen it for uh, his entourage. I mean, think of this, a gate that had been used for centuries in this historic city was altered for the arrival of this German king. Emperor Wilhelm himself led the procession and he entered the city on horseback. Lots of photos from the day survive showing the majestic occasion. It must have taken months of preparation and planning. It must have cost a considerable amount as well. Soon after the parade, and this may be an apocryphal story because there's no photo to to verify it, uh, but I want to believe that it's true. Uh, Soon after the parade, someone climbed up and attached a a, a large sign uh, to the gate uh, with these words, a a better man than Wilhelm came through this city's gate. He rode a donkey. Do you know something? I wish I had been that person. Wilhelm's entrance into Jerusalem came 1,900 years after Jesus' own entrance into the city, and the two processions or the two parades could not have been more different. To describe this event, the one involving Jesus, Matthew quotes from the prophet Zechariah, and we heard those words at the beginning of the service when Sam read them for us. And uh, since Matthew was writing to a predominantly Jewish Christian audience, he makes frequent references uh, to the Old Testament, as, as many of you know. And he makes the case over and over again that Jesus was a, a fulfillment of Old Testament uh, prophecy and that his coming was uh, foretold long ago. Uh, one of Matthew's favorite phrases, of course, is, as it is written. You know, as if to say, uh, you shouldn't be surprised. Anyone with eyes open could have seen this coming. Zechariah makes clear that the the king who was to come, and according to scholars, uh, Zechariah was quite upset with King Uzziah when he wrote this. Uh, Zechariah makes clear that the the king who was to come, the the future king, a king who would bear no resemblance to King Uzziah, uh, or Wilhelm for that matter, uh, would ride into the city on a donkey. And, this is important, this future king would be humble. Uh, I'm not sure why, but I've never uh, really paid much attention to that word uh, humble in the story. I've read this story many times, as you might imagine, every Palm Sunday, but this time, for some reason, that word just jumped out at me. Uh, The one word, the one adjective that Matthew wanted to use in this connection was humble. Humility. All right. let, let me ask you something, and I'm, I, I'm thinking about that 
I'm thinking about that sign that was supposedly hung over the Jaffa Gate after Wilhelm's uh, entrance into the city, the, the one about a better man. What was it about Jesus that made him a better man? All right, well, uh, you might say that he was better in all kinds of ways, uh, which is true. Uh, where do we begin? Uh, but as Matthew tells the story, there is one way in particular that Jesus was a better man, and that way was that he was humble. You know, we aren't used to seeing humility in our leaders. Humility and, and political leadership don't often go together. Uh, when I moved to Switzerland, I was amazed. Uh, you can't imagine uh, how amazed I was to see the uh, photos of the president uh, of this country standing on a train platform, uh, waiting with lots of other commuters for the train to arrive. Right? What an unexpected sight. It was startling to me. And I understand the reasons why leaders, uh, many leaders cannot do that. I understand the need for security. I don't begrudge our uh, leaders their personal safety. But to see the Swiss president waiting for a train, it's remarkable. This contrast between the kings of this world and a king like Jesus should be familiar to all of us. All right? I, I don't know if you've ever thought of it uh, before, but the, the birth story... Uh, of Jesus in Luke's gospel contains a very subtle but important illustration of this. Luke 2 begins, as you know, with the words, in those days a, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be in rule. And, and you might ask yourself if it's really necessary to mention the Roman governor in a story about Jesus' birth. Right? And, and the answer is no. Right? But, but Luke is a master storyteller and, and, and simply by dropping the name. He is setting up this contrast in our minds. The, the Roman governor woke up one day and, and decided that everyone in his empire should, uh, should be counted, probably for tax purposes. That's always the reason. And so he ordered it. Well, that's power, and that, that's raw, unadulterated power. I can wake up in the morning with lots of good ideas, <laughs> but I don't have the power to make them happen. Oh, but Emperor Augustus did. And his decree set in motion the events that led to the birth of, of Jesus one night in Bethlehem, where a real king, now this is what we're supposed to see, where a real king was born with power of a different order altogether. This theme of humility did not start in the New Testament and, and, and Jesus and his donkey ride into Jerusalem. Uh, Moses, and I don't think I fully appreciated this one either, uh, Moses is described in the book of Numbers, this is in chapter 12, verse 3, if you want to look it up later. Uh, Moses is described as very humble. And, th and then it continues, more humble than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Why, that's just remarkable. Right, don't you think? And, and, and for a, a political leader, I suspect that Moses did not learn his uh, hanav, that's the word that's used throughout the uh, Old Testament, Moses did not learn his hanav right away. Uh, as you know, he was uh, a murderer at the age of uh, 40. He was not very humble at that time. Uh, and then shortly after the murder, he became a refugee in the, the Sinai Desert, and, and he spent 40 years learning how to be a human being. There were spiritual lessons that had to be learned before he was fit to be a leader of his people. 
Personally, and I'm, I say this quite seriously, I hope I can learn my own lessons in a shorter amount of time. But the Bible seems to say that this process of learning humility takes a long, long time. Uh, it was at age 80, according to the Bible, that God called to Moses out of the burning bush to lead God's people out of Egypt. So, I mean, something about those years of tending his father-in-law's sheep, and, and many times he, he probably thought to himself, I'm wasting my whole life out here. Uh, many times he probably thought that he was wasting his life, but something about those years taught him the, the, you know, the, the most important character trait he would need to be a leader of his people. The word hanav in the Hebrew has uh, two different meanings. Uh, there's humility uh, that comes from personal circumstances. You can be born into poverty and, and, and therefore you have humble circumstances whether you wanted them or not. Uh, but there's another meaning and, and, and this is the, the, the meaning of the word that seems to be found throughout the, the, the Old Testament. Uh, to be humble, to have hanav is, is something you have to learn. It's a character trait that you acquire and then you cultivate it and, and it has nothing whatsoever to do with your personal circumstances. So with this kind of hanav, you can be rich or poor and it doesn't matter. This kind of uh, hanav is, is about who we are at the depths of our being. It is who Jesus was right, at the depths of his being. The, the, uh, it's the reason or, or one of the reasons we, we, we find ourselves attracted to him. Elsewhere in the New Testament it says he did, not uh, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, right? as something to talk about all the time, as something to dangle in front of everyone he met. Right? What, what makes us want to know him and what makes us want to spend time with him and, and what makes us want to follow him is his approachable spirit, his hanav, his humility. C.S. Lewis in his, his book Mere Christianity writes that uh, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. All right? And I suppose what he's getting at there, what Lewis wants us to see, is that humility should not be confused with low self-esteem. Humility is not putting yourself down and, and, and thinking that you have no worth and, and believing that your life will never amount to anything. Your parents were right and your teachers were right. You're not very good. Right? It's, it's kind of a litany that some of us learned a long time ago and we internalized it and early in our lives and then we replay this message over and over again and it has a kind of power over us. Right? But that's not humility. And if you hear nothing else that I say today, I hope you hear this, this one thing, uh, that that feeling of low self-worth is a problem. Right? And it, it needs to be addressed and it can be addressed. Uh, with some hard work, but it's not humility. Uh, true humility, as, as Lewis puts it, is the opposite of pride. Right? Lewis calls pride the, the, the great sin, and, and elsewhere in the mere Christianity, he, he says the, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, uh, anger, greed, uh, drunkenness, and all of that, he writes, are flea bites in comparison. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery of every nation and every family since the world began. I think that's strong language, but I also think it's true. Until we can overcome this thing called pride and, and put humility, true humility in its place, we're going to be miserable people and, and we're going to be miserable in every area of our lives. 
In the chapter just before this one, uh, Matthew 20, there's a wonderful story about uh, the mother of James and John. How she came to be with the group at this point in their uh, ministry is a puzzle to me. Uh, Maybe she was following the whole time, we don't know. But she was clearly advocating for her boys. Uh, Apparently the group had not yet absorbed the message (laughs) that Jesus was going to Jerusalem uh, to to die. Instead, they thought they were a part of a startup of some kind. Uh, and, And someday, sooner rather than later, this startup would be big. And so the mother of James and John came to Jesus and asked him directly to, to give her sons a special place in the kingdom. You remember this story. She says, declare that these two sons of mine, she says this to Jesus, declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your kingdom. And then Jesus rather gently, I think, said, you don't know what you are asking. Naturally, the other disciples heard about this incident. There are no secrets in churches. There are no secrets in in groups like this. And they were angry with James and John. And and not because James and John failed to understand the true nature of Jesus' mission. They didn't get it either. But because they wanted good positions too. With good benefits and a pension plan and a parking place. Right? They were all working so hard, and this breaks my heart in a way to, to think about it. These disciples were all working so hard to achieve something and to be important, and, and, and they wanted to be able to say, Look, Mom, at what I have done with my life. So Jesus said to all of them, he called them together, and he said, We need to talk. And then this is what he said, Whoever wishes to be great among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, it it seems clear to me that what Jesus did on that first Palm Sunday long ago was entirely deliberate. I mean, he knew exactly what he was doing. He planned everything, and he planned it down to the smallest detail. Uh, he, he knew the significance of riding into the, the city on a horse. Pilate did that at least once each year at, at the time of uh, Passover. Pilate came with his wife and his soldiers, and it was a grand entrance, and, and everyone in the city turned out to see it. It was the power of Rome on display, or at least a small part of it. And what a spectacle! So Jesus very carefully planned a parade in which he would not be Pilate, and, and he would not be Emperor Wilhelm. He would ride a donkey, and as the story puts it, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I mean, this would not be a demonstration of power, at least not the way people usually think of power. This would be power of a different kind altogether, the power of a servant. The the, the power of one who gives his life as a ransom for many. Thomas Aquinas once wrote that uh, humility is recognizing the truth about ourselves, right? both our limitations and our gifts. If you and I are going to learn humility, the kind we see in Jesus, we're going to have to see ourselves as we really are. Right? And believe me, that's not easy. First of all, we have to stop listening to all of those negative messages that we have received over the years. We have to find a way 
to stop that narrative within us that sabotages us and, and sabotages our relationships, that, that prevents us from being the people we were created to be, that's the first thing. And the second thing is this, we need to train ourselves to, to see ourselves as God sees us. And, and just to be clear, God has no illusions about us. Right? God knows our weaknesses as well as our strengths. So it's not as though God sees us as perfect and without blemish. Here's the good news. God sees us as we are and has decided to love us anyway. In spite of how unlovable we can be. I held my newborn grandson in my arms a few weeks ago, and please, feel free to take me aside if you think I'm telling too many stories about this. All right? But I held my newborn grandson in my arm a few weeks ago, and I knew from the first time that I laid eyes on him that I loved him. He is mine. He has my name. He has a few of my features, the better ones. He is beautiful. To me. Right? And, and will always be beautiful. And nothing will ever change that. And that is about as close as I can get to how God must see me. And how God must see each one of us. Right? And, and I, I have a few more things to say. Uh, about God's extraordinary love. And I'm going to say them when we gather again on Good Friday morning at the Anglican Church. I'll see you then. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the message of this day. That you have come in power to change the world and to rescue it and to claim it for yourself. But that that power is different from anything we know. We pray for a little of what Jesus demonstrated for us on that day. We pray for a humility that goes to the core of our beings. A humility that sees ourselves as we are with both gifts and limitations. Help us, we pray, to be more and more like your Son. We pray this in Christ's name.